The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 and 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 2 in the Black Bibles. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. And thank you, Leslie, for reading for us this morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, I also want to, um, I, don't, I think they're coming to the 1030 service, but want y'all to be looking for uh, two new staff members uh, at, for, at Christ the King so we can extend a welcome to them. Uh, Mary Catherine Montgomery is going to be here worshiping with us and she's going to be our new young adults coordinator for um, the young adult women here at our church, serving them, caring for them discipling them, and also Mary Henley Green, who is our new director of women's ministry, will be joining us for worship later at 10.30. So maybe you'll see them uh, passing, but keep an eye out for them. We're really excited that God has brought these, uh, these two talented and gifted and humble women to serve our church. We're going to be really blessed by them. Um, I want to say a particular welcome to Christ the King if this is one of your first times here. One of the things that we believe at this church is, uh, is something that the great missionary D.T. Niles once said, that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And that assumes a couple things. One, it first assumes that we're all beggars. 
that every single person who shows up at this church shows up as a spiritual beggar in need. But it also assumes that we're all hungry, that all of us show up looking for bread. And uh, there is a spiritual aspect in which that is true. We are spiritually hungry for the spiritual bread, but we're also physically hungry people. And few things unite humans more than food. Think about that. All of us need it. We gather around it. Our traditions and cultures are built upon it. To be human is to be an eater. So this morning, I want us to think about that. Why? Why did God make us eaters? And I want to examine that because I think if all of us were honest with ourselves, every single one of us who shows up this morning has a complicated relationship with food. Every single one of us, including the one standing before you, has a complicated relationship with food. We are comprised of picky eaters, gluttonous eaters, cereal dieters, overeaters, undereaters, disordered eaters, health-obsessed eaters, clean eaters. We've got high cholesterol, we've got low cholesterol. We've got food allergies, we've got low sodium and high sodium, we have vitamin deficiencies, and we obsess about our food. We watch TV shows about it, me included. We plan our vacations around it, we photograph it, we Instagram it. And I'm not just making light of this because for many of us, our, our relationship with food is a source of deep shame. And, and I'll be honest with you, my, my own story with food, part of my story with food is that as a, as a child, I was an extremely picky eater. And my, uh, my fear was to be invited to a friend's house and then to be served a dish that I couldn't eat. And to, to have this food placed before me and then to feel like I, I, I can't do that, I can't eat this. And uh, felt very, very ashamed about that, very insecure about that. And there's words that, you know, there's words that are spoken over us that stick with us as children. And, and even some of the words that were said over me and my pickiness were things like, don't you wanna be a big strong boy when you grow up? And that was my fear, was to not be that. To not be a big, strong boy. And there, there was a place in which my eating became a, a great source of, of insecurity. And my question for you even is, what, what words about your eating have stuck with you? Maybe, maybe a comment about being big-boned a comment from a mom reminding you it's swimsuit season coming up? Or a question about, are you sure you wanna get that fried? Why don't we get that grilled? Or even, even the dad jokes about trading in our six pack for a keg, right? These are all words that we actually meditate on and they shape us. And they shape our appetites as eaters. And so that's what I wanna look at with you this morning. Two point sermon, doesn't mean it's gonna be much shorter, but it's a two point sermon. Right? One, our appetite, and second, our appetite redeemed. So let's pray. 
Father, we do give you thanks that you've made us eaters. Help us to understand what that means um, and what that invites us into. And we pray that you would do that with Christ's help by his spirit now. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, our appetite. We're going through the book of Genesis and it's just interesting that when God makes Adam and Eve, he could have made them however he wanted. And for some reason, he decided to put them in a garden and to make them eaters. He didn't have to do that. But I want to suggest that in making them eaters, he's inviting them into something. He's inviting them into dependency. Being dependent upon something else for nourishment and for life. The, the word appetite, we get it from the Latin words, um, ad petere, which means to seek after. So in, in having appetites, all of us intrinsically are, are people who are seeking after something. So God makes them with this seeking after. And it makes total sense if you think about what we've talked about, about God's character and how he reveals himself in the book of Genesis, that God has revealed himself as a host. As a host who wants us to enjoy and live into his generosity and joy and his love. And how do you host a guest if they have no need, right? So instead, what God does is he creates Adam and Eve with a need that he can pour his generosity and love into. Their appetite, our appetite, your appetite, is an invitation. God has given us this innate seeking after, ad petere, this seeking after that that is spiritual, but it's also physical. And he's made us eaters, and in that eating, we are invited into something. I want want to read to you a quote from um, Alexander Schmemann. He's a Greek Orthodox theologian. He wrote a book called For the Life of the World that kind of reflects on communion. He says this, in the Bible, the food that man eats, the world of which he must partake in order to live is given to him by God and it's given as communion with God. I love this. All that exists is God's gift to man and it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates and in biblical language, this means that he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation. Quote, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Food is a gift to mankind. It is a gift that exists to make God known to mankind. And so that's true about a bone-in ribeye. That is a gift that exists to make God known to man. Freshly cut pineapple is a gift. Brownies and vanilla ice cream, glory hallelujah, is a gift to make God known to man. I'm told that green beans are that too. I'm still figuring that one out. But food is an invitation to know the love and embrace of God. Divine love made food. 
So our spiritual appetites and our physical appetites are given to us as an invitation to seek the one who can fill us. So it's no surprise then how the serpent attacks them. The evil one, the one who is a liar and destroyer, the corrupter of God's good creation, the inventor of physical assault and of orphanages and human trafficking and gossip and bloodshed and backstabbing and loneliness, he shows up and attacks their appetite. What an interesting thing for him to attack. And did you catch how he, the the serpent who is crafty, the first thing that's said about him is the serpent is craftier than all the other animals. You know he probably thought about what what his first line was gonna be to this this innocent family standing in the garden. What's he gonna say? What's the first thing he's going to bring to question? Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? He calls into question God's generosity. God didn't say they couldn't eat from any of the trees, but he's attacking, he's saying, man, God is, he is not generous, he's scarce. Did he really say you can't eat from any of these trees? He's not a generous host. He's questioning the generosity of God and attacking their physical eating. And I think this is significant because the very first sin was an eating sin. And all kinds of, there are all kinds of spiritual and unseen things happening underneath that eating, but we can't lose sight that it was, the first sin was a sin of eating. And that's significant. Because in their eating, they are rejecting God. They're rejecting God because they're believing what the serpent's lie is, that God knows if you eat of the tree that you'll become like him. And so underneath this, the serpent is saying, Reject community with God, reject living under God's sovereign rule and control, and instead, instead of living in dependence upon him, become like God, become independent, and you take control. From the very beginning of the Bible, our eating is very closely connected with control. Do we trust the control of the host? Or do we want to control things ourselves? And the irony is this, we've talked about this, the irony is that whatever it is that we try to control ends up controlling us in this life. And think about how this happens with our food. And and before I kind of talk about like ways that this manifests, I, I want to acknowledge that for many of us, the reason we want to control our food is because of a lot of pain that's underneath that. Perhaps we want to feel like there's at least something that we we can control even when we maybe couldn't control that traumatic event that happened to us. Or we couldn't control the way that we were abandoned. Or we, couldn't, we can't control the loneliness that we feel. And so instead, we often look to control something. And for many of us, it is food. And so perhaps that manifests in overeating. 
and idolizing our food, trying to control that at least there's some place in this world where at least for a little while I can get a little bit of comfort and a little bit of pleasure. So when life feels completely out of control, whether it's the stress of work or feeling overwhelmed by a family dynamic that's going on, or I don't know, a global pandemic, food can be a place where we feel like we have just a little bit of control and a little bit of safety. I I was talking to a friend of mine about this and he said, you know what? Everything can feel real out of control in my life, but I can make a peanut M&M do what it's supposed to do. (laughs) Everything feels out of control, but that peanut M&M is gonna make me feel good for a little while, for a few minutes. And there, there is comfort that we get from this kind of control, but it's fleeting. And what ends up happening is that thing that we're looking to to comfort us ends up controlling us and shaming us and beckoning, beckoning us back for more comfort and more shame, and the cycle continues. There, there's a um, TV show maybe you could watch it devotionally after this sermon called The Chef's Table, um, about all these amazing chefs and res- their restaurants and the dishes that they make. The second episode in the entire um, series uh, it features a man named Dan Barber, who's kind of one of the pioneers of the farm-to-table movement. Blue Hill uh, Restaurant in Manhattan is one of his restaurants that he's famous for. But towards the end of uh, the show, he's reflecting on his life as a chef and he says, he says this, isn't our life one attempt to fill a void after another? What if, that, if this is all there is, that's what life is. One attempt after another to fill a void. That's what it feels like to be controlled by our eating. Or perhaps it's not overeating in, in which we're looking to find control, control but over limiting our food intake or over-exercising disproportionate to our caloric intake. And again, the reason that we do this is control. If I can control my food intake, at least there's something in this world that feels chaotic that I can have a little bit of agency over. This loneliness feels out of control or my grief that feels out of control or the trauma that I've gone through feels out of control. Perhaps getting some sort of control over what I'm intaking will give me some kind of solace. Or perhaps we do do this, if if you listen to how our culture talks about our intake of food, for many of us, it's a, it's a place where we can control our feeling of rightness, or you could even say righteousness. Because our culture, in, in a lot of ways, associates like a moral language with the way that we eat. Think about it. When, when we order something with lots of calories, we say that we're cheating. That's moral language. Or we're going to be bad and get the chips and queso. That's moral language. Or we're going to be good and skip dessert. That's moral language. Michael Pollan in his book, uh, In Defense of Food, an Eater's Manifesto, tells of a, there was a word association study done between um, different cultures and the 
what words those cultures associate with certain foods. So the, the word for chocolate cake, most French people, the word that they associate with chocolate cake, celebration. That's the French associate, the common French association with the word chocolate cake, celebration. The American association with chocolate cake, our word, guilt. That's moral language. We're looking to control our sense of rightness or right standing in this world by the way that we eat. But what we see in this passage is that in their, in their disordered eating, Adam and Eve find pain and shame and they hide. They hide from each other. They hide from God. These, ap- these appetites that were supposed to make them seek after and to live into the invitation to know God's beauty and generosity and joy and delight, now they're doing the opposite. Rather than going out of themselves and seeking out, they are going in and they're hiding. Are you hidden? Do you feel like you have to hide from God? Do you feel like you have to hide from your parents? From your spouse? You feel like you have to hide something from your friends? How do we get out of this hiddenness and shame? Well, this is so key. Because verse nine is just, it's devastatingly beautiful. That these image bearers who are made to to seek after God and and to live into his delight in their hiddenness, God becomes the one who seeks after them. God has an appetite for them. He is seeking after them and he asks the question, where are you? Oh, it's a devastating question. They're hiding from the one who's made them, from their father. Where are you? It's in seeing this one who comes looking for us that our our appetites can begin to be redeemed. Second point, the redemption of our appetites. Our appetites are changed by God's appetite to seek out and to love us and to save us. That's that's one, really how my eating changed. I think I've told some of y'all this before, but when Chrissy and I got engaged, I was eating no vegetables. That's where I was at in life. (laughs) And she said, hey, listen, I want you to be married to me for a while and to live for a while. So you've got to learn, but I love you and I'm going to be with you in this. And so we're just going to make, we're going to make it fun, but 
every year we're going to learn to like a new vegetable. So we would do like this whole game and she'd put five bags in front of me, each with a different vegetable. And she'd be like, just draw one. I'm scared. I don't want to. (laughs) Pick one. Draw carrots. It's the year of the carrot. We're going to learn how to like carrots. Every dish that she prepares is going to have some way that a carrot is prepared deliciously. And the next year, we do the next vegetable. And we still haven't done green beans. But all, all those vegetables, or maybe we did and I failed. I think that's what happened. But really, in doing that, in many ways, I, 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 I kind of like pretty much most food now. But the reason, the reason that I was able to like move towards that is because somebody loved me in the midst of my struggle, came alongside me, sought after me to help me. So friends, what if food for us becomes less of something for us to control, either as an escape or as some sort of validation, but instead becomes a gift to enjoy, where we see that somebody is seeking after us? What if it's a place where we receive the invitation to know God's goodness and love? How freeing could that be to see that God pursues you in your eating at a table? Jesus, um, Jesus says that man doesn't live on bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. So one of the ways that we are going to be shaped as eaters isn't just by what we eat physically, but by seeing and hearing what God says is true about us and about himself. And as we feed on the word of God, what we see is that God's word tells us over and over and over again that he is for sinners, for beggars, He's for us. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He rejoices over you with singing. That's who God is. So, as we consider what God's word says, what if it's inviting us into a table with him? Because y'all, when you look at the Bible, all throughout the pages of scripture, God is longing to, to, to host us at his table. He puts Adam and Eve in this garden with beautiful trees and beautiful food, it says in Genesis 2. A delight to to the eye. He puts them in the garden, he lays it before them. But he doesn't stop there. Even in their sin, he's, he's longing to bring them back to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? The promised land. On their way, he's feeding and laying before them bread from heaven, manna. King David writes that one day God is going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is who God is. It's no surprise that when God in the flesh shows up as the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he doing? He's eating and drinking with sinners. He's so much so that people think he's a drunk and a glutton. His first miracle is to, to fix a reception, to fix a feast because he's the Lord of the feast. He begins telling stories 
Stories of a father throwing a feast for a runaway son or a rich king longing to throw a wedding feast and sending out his servants into the highways and hedges to bring in all kinds of people, to bring in the poor, the destitute, to celebrate at his table. The biblical story ends with the feast of the richest of foods at the table set for the marriage supper of the lamb. God is a host who longs to bring you to his table. How do we get to this table? It's at that wedding feast that Cana, right before Jesus is about to fix the wedding feast problem, when his mother tells them there's a wedding feast problem, he says cryptically, my hour has not yet come. It's like, what? what are you talking about? Your hour. But all through the book of John, Jesus is referring to his hour, his hour, his hour. And it's the hour that he goes to the cross, that he goes to the cross to pay for the ways that we have rejected him to pay for the ways that we even reject him with the way that we spiritually and physically eat. He has paid for that. His hour did come. And at that hour, he paid, not just for our wrongdoing, but also for our entrance into his feast. He has paid for it. He has welcomed us into it. And there is a great joy, I'll close with this story, there's great joy in having the chef prepare you a meal. Um, I, I got a really special chance to go to a, a restaurant in Austin with Chrissy a few years back. This restaurant had just been voted um, best new restaurant in the city. And my, my sister is friends with the chef. And so I mentioned to her that we were, we're going to this restaurant and she said, oh, okay, great. I'll let them know that you're going to be there. And I, I didn't really think anything of it. We sit down, we start, uh, we order our food. And all of a sudden, like food that we haven't ordered starts like just coming to the table. And it's stuff that I never would have ordered. Like there was like blue cornbread involved. It's like, what is that? And why is it blue? And why does it have like a honeycomb and a flour on it with sea salt? And they're like, just the chef wants you to have this. And the cornbread and these deviled eggs and biscuits, it was a Southern restaurant because he didn't, like, it was unbelievable. But it was unbelievable because the, she, the chef knew what was best for us. There is great joy and delight in, just, in, in not seeking for your own control over your own meal, but looking to the chef and depending upon him to let Jesus serve you. And what this means as we live into this is that this would, this would look like us becoming people who remember that food is only a sign pointing to the, what we ultimately need, which means that we can become people who fast. But also that we see that, that food, it, we will look like people who, who see that food is a gift and an invitation from God, and so we become people who feast, who fast and who feast. And as he serves us, we, we look to him for help, help in dealing with the pain and the trauma underneath our eating that makes us want to seize control. We look to him for help and, and that feels hard and, it, and it, needs, it, it needs to be dealt with in community. We need to help each other with this, with the way that we eat. 
Our counseling center would be a great resource for, for someone who maybe needs particular help with that. You are invited into that. Because friends, it, the expectation in this life is that we will struggle. And it, we should expect that we will struggle, but it's not okay for us to struggle alone. We need each other. So um, in closing, I wanna share a prayer with you that gets at the delight that we are welcomed into. This is from the book, um, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farrar Capone, who's an Episcopal priest and a chef. Oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. Restore to us spoons or soups that spoons will not sink in and sauces which are never the same twice. Raise up among us stews with more gravy than we have bread to blot it with, and casseroles that put starch and substance in our limp modernity. Take away our fear of fat and make us glad of the oil which ran upon Aaron's beard. Give us pasta with a hundred fillings and rice in a thousand variations. Above all, give us grace to live as true men and women, to fast till we come to a refreshed sense of what we have, and then to dine gratefully on all that comes to hand. Drive far from us, O most bountiful, all creatures of air and darkness, cast out the demons that possess us, deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition, and set us free once more in our own land where we shall serve thee as thou hast blessed us with the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you who are more generous and bountiful than we can imagine or dare dream, help us to live into your invitation to know you in our eating. Guard us, protect us from stopping at the sign, from replacing you, the creator, with the created things, but instead, let us live into your joy that you invite us into. Only by Jesus, we pray that you would, in his name, amen.